Happy Wednesday. It is, uh, it's good to be with you here tonight. Um, if you got your Bibles tonight, we're going to be in John chapter 8. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles, there are notes that are going to be on the screen, and there are some there in your, um, in your bulletin. We um, are beginning, uh, well, I guess we began last week. Tonight, we're in our second week of a series where we talk about the I Am statements of Jesus. And uh, last week, we talked about Jesus where uh, he had basically said, I am the bread of life, and we talked about that. Tonight, we'll talk about Jesus as the light of the world. Um, here in the next couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to talk probably the next four or five weeks, um, we will talk about the remainder that are all found in the book of John. Now, the interesting and, and frankly, the incredible thing is that God is so good to us, not only to reveal himself in metaphors like this that are easy to understand. When you talk to a child about being the light of the world or the bread of life, you can explain that to a child in a very simplistic way and they, they have understanding of it. And we have a creator God that has accommodated us because of his great love for us. And uh, it is incredible, but that's not the only thing that's incredible. What's also amazing is that in these metaphors, what Jesus is doing is he is showing us different sides of his nature. He's showing us like a holistic view of who he is so that we can gain a better understanding of his character, his love, uh, his nature, all this good stuff. It is, it is so encouraging um, when you consider the goodness of God to us. If you weren't able to be here last week, you can catch up online, but if you're just like, I'm not going to go online, give me the recap. Uh, let me just tell you real quickly, we talked a little bit about Jesus as being the bread of life. Now in that, um, we talked about the author of this book, the Gospel of John. This is, um, this is not John the Baptist, who was the prophet that went to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, this is John the Beloved. This was Jesus's closest ally, um, his closest friend whom Jesus spent probably more time than any other person in the world Jesus spent with this young man. And so he has a perspective that's super different than, than any other writers uh, in scripture. And so uh, John, what we find is that not only did he write the Gospel of John, but he also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, those epistles, and he, he actually rounded out not only the New Testament, but he rounded out all of Scripture uh, by writing the book of Revelation as he had this revelation of Christ uh, on the Isle of Patmos. And so as we look at John, we talked a little bit about uh, last week about how unique John's Gospel is compared to the other three Gospels. Um, now, one thing that you'll notice when we, when we go through, like if you're in your Bible reading plan and you read through the book of John, that Gospel, what you'll see is that John has um, certain methods that he uses as he writes. He'll use certain phrases again and again and again. He'll use the word light or life or truth. He'll just use these over and over again. But one of the most defining um, aspects about John's writing is, is this, is that what he typically will do is he will take an event, whether that be a miracle or a healing or some dramatic moment like we're about to read about here in a moment, he will take an event and based out of that event, Jesus will do a teaching that is connected to that event. And over and over and over again, and, and you say, well, I thought that's what the Bible did. Not always. The gospel writers do not always write like that. But John is very distinct. Event, teaching. Event, 
teaching, event teaching. And so by the time we get to John chapter eight, the entire chapter is really dedicated to an event that had just happened followed up with the teaching that Jesus is going to uh, uh, give us here in a moment. So if you have your notes, we're going to be in John chapter 8. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 2, we're going to start and we're going to read a good portion here so you can follow along. The Bible reads this, early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them. The disciples and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? Now pause here for a moment. Jesus, at this point in his ministry career, he has gained tremendous influence with the public. People know who he is. They have heard about his miracles, about his teaching. Um, so there is a, um, a great level of popularity that's happening with Jesus, but there's a great level of irritability that's arising among religious leaders because he's teaching what they, contrary to what they're teaching. And so in a lot of encounters that you'll see throughout the gospels, you will see Jesus teaching, but he's teaching because there are religious leaders that are just trying to catch him in a trap. They're testing him. And so they'll say, well, Jesus, what about this scenario? What about if this happens? What about, what do you say regarding this? And they'll try to test him and they'll try to capture him and kind of trap him into these verbal arguments. But for the first time, what we see is that these religious leaders are no longer having just a verbal argument with Jesus. Now they have brought a human life into the mix. And the Bible says that they were testing Jesus, but it's not just they're testing Jesus to see what he will say. But based on what Jesus says will be the difference between life or death for this woman. So this test isn't a, a common test or exam that these men would do. It is at a whole nother level. So they ask him, they say, the law of Moses says that we should stone this woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down again and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and then Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Another other translations say, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus, in his beautiful mix of, of, of truth and grace, he says, and Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. And so again, Jesus spoke to them saying this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I've come and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from 
or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would also know my father. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Isn't it good to know that nothing happens to us outside of the timing of our father? Amen. So Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, will it kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And Jesus said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus answered, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I've been saying it from the beginning. I've told you who I am. I've told you where I've come from. But they cannot see it because they're blinded. And so he says, just as I've told you from the beginning, I have so much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that Jesus had been talking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And listen to this. And as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, Lord, as we open your word tonight, I pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to understand the things that you want us to understand. Lord, help us to perceive things that we may not otherwise perceive without the teaching element of your spirit. And so, Lord, I just pray out of all of this that you will help us more than anything to have a better understanding of who you are and the depth of your love for us tonight, God. So please bless your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen, amen. I am an uh, enormous C.S. Lewis fan. Um, in, in my undergrad, I did an entire semester dedicated to the, the theology and the philosophy of C.S. Lewis. Um, I, my, one of my goals in life, like on my bucket list, is to read all 60 or 70 books that, that he's written. And um, one time, um, a couple of years ago, when the church did a trip to Israel, um, my wife and I and, and pastor and some others, we, we had a layover in London, so we kind of like delayed the trip a little bit. And um, on the last day of the trip, we were in London, um, I, I tried so hard. I wanted to go to Oxford, which is a little bit north of London, and I wanted to go where C.S. Lewis ate dinner. It's this place called the uh, uh, Eagle and Child. And uh, I, I tried so hard to get my wife. She was just disinterested. 
everybody on the trip was super tired or they had already been or whatever. And uh, so I was like, okay, forget it. So I got on a train by myself in London and I went two hours north and I ate dinner at the pub where C.S. Lewis and the Inklings all kind of, so I'm a, I am an enormous Lewis fan. I love his writings. Um, a few, a few years ago, uh, I read an article. It's a relatively short article. Uh, it's not very long. It's called uh, Meditation in a Toolshed. If you've never had the opportunity to read it, it is, it's, it's a tremendous read. Um, but basically, Lewis says this. He says that one day he uh, went into the backyard into a tool shed, and he went to go get a tool out, out of there. And when he went into the tool shed, the door shut behind him. And when the door shut behind him, um, he said it was pitch black. It was so dark in the room that you virtually could not see your hand in front of you. It was just, it was utter darkness. But he said when he turned around, he saw that in the door, there was a, there was a beam of light and through a crack that was shining through the door. And he said that as he stood back and he kind of observed and he, he looked at the beaming light, he said that he could see all kind of things in the beam of light. As he was looking at it, he could see particles and specks of dust and all kind of different things. He could even see some things that, you know, on the ground that the light was, was hitting and lighting up. And he said, for, for whatever reason, as he was looking at the beam of light, that Lewis decided that he would stop looking at the beam of light and he would stake it, take a step and he would look into the beam of light. And he says when he looked into the beam of light, that all of a sudden, his perspective totally changed. He saw things as he was looking into the beam of light that he could not see as he was looking at the beam of light. And so he goes on to, you know, to talk about different things, and he uses an analogy. He talks about um, a psychiatrist, and he says, listen, a psychiatrist can see a beam of light that's shining on a couple who is in love, and he can observe them, and he can talk about, you know, all the foo-foo they do, and how much they, they love each other, and open doors, and shut doors, and laugh when it's really not funny. He can observe all that kind of stuff, and he can jot this down, and he can go stand behind a, a lectern, and he can give a phenomenal lecture about his observations of what love is based on him looking at a couple who is in love. But Lewis makes the argument, he said, but that is a wholly different thing looking at a couple who is in love than placing yourself in the light that is shining and you yourself are in love. It's a totally different thing. You see things in a completely different manner. In this series of events that have just happened in the life of Jesus, what we have is these religious leaders catch this woman in the act of adultery, right? She is, there's no need to explain, right? She is caught in the act of adultery. They drag this woman to the religious temple of God and they throw her in front of Jesus, in front of the crowd, and they throw her in the light that is going to expose all of her ugliness, all of her sin, her brokenness, the grotesqueness of the results of her sin, they are going to throw her in the light and they are going to stand back and they are going to make judgments and they are going to observe and they are going to call out and they are going to, they are going to be so cruel to this woman. And Jesus, in essence, is saying this. It is easy for us to take someone that we know who is caught in the act of adultery or a sin that we don't like 
and to throw them into the light so that we can make observations or judgments about them. But it is a wholly different thing when we place ourselves in the light and look into the light and that light exposes the things inside of us that are not pleasing to the Lord. All of a sudden in that moment, all of a sudden there's a greater level of understanding for this woman who's caught in the act because I'm not so critical of her because I see the wrong and the brokenness within me. Now, all of a sudden, instead of being a person that wants to judge her and to condemn her, I'm a person that wants to extend mercy. I'm a person that wants to pick her up and to dust her off, not because what she has done is right, but because when I look at her and her sin and I truly look at the depths of my own sin, I see that we are the same and we're all in need of a savior. And so this is where um, John takes us as he observes all these things that are happening with Jesus and the woman caught in the act of adultery. Now, um, before we go any further, it's important to make um, a, a couple of distinctions, okay? There, there is a difference between, uh, in church, you'll hear us talk about things like sin um, and sins with an S. So it's like sin with a big S, and then it's sin with a little s, but an extra s. So it's sin and sins. And it's important that, that we kind of get our mind around this because even as we read through scripture, as we listen to teaching from God's word, it's not always specified which one is, is being addressed. And so in general, what we're saying when we talk about sin in general, we're talking about the human condition of brokenness. We're talking about people who are lost in sin means that we have rebelled against God. It is the sinful nature of humanity that we have inherited all the way back to Adam, that we are, are born into. It's, it's like a disease that courses through our veins. And if we don't find a cure for that disease in Christ, then we will be eternally separated from God, not just temporarily separated from God. Right? This is what we call sin. It's, it's human nature. When we talk about sins, these are the byproducts of sin. So if sin is the disease, sins are the symptoms of the disease. So if I am broken and lost without Christ, it is clear that I'm carrying the disease, I'm going to have a lot of symptoms of the disease. I'm going to walk in sins and do things that are dark and, and wrong. Even if I am a person who has come to faith in Christ and my sin has been forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Christ, I celebrate that because my disease is cured. I'm eternally reconnected with God. I'm going to spend eternity with him. However, because I once had the disease of sin, some of those symptoms can still carry over into my life, even though the disease is gone. So I may be going to heaven, I may have a, a great relationship with Christ, but I am still prone to fall into sin from time to time because I am still living in brokenness. I'm still living in a broken world. And so this is what John writes about later in his later epistle. He says this, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What John is saying, he's saying, listen, if you say that you don't carry the disease of sin from birth, you're, you're deceiving yourself. 
If you're saying you don't have that, what you're really saying is you don't need a redeemer in Christ. And so there's a distinction that, that John is even making here. And what we see in this moment with uh, these, these religious leaders and this woman who is just thrown before them, this is what we see. We see men that are so enraged at her sins that they are completely blinded to their sin. They're so, they're so upset about the symptoms that she is displaying, but they are utterly blinded to the fact that they're carrying the disease. And it's a moment where Jesus, if, if you know, the, the religious leaders, they come into this moment in Jerusalem, in the temple, the, the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles have just happened. And so there is just, just thousands and thousands of people all across the nation have descended into Jerusalem. And, and oftentimes, even though it was a religious festival, um, there would be a lot of times where a lot of immoral activity, because you would have people that they, they weren't really spiritual, they were just religious. They didn't truly have a relationship with God, but they wanted to go through the religious acts. And so they would descend into Jerusalem and oftentimes all kind of sinful things would, would happen and, and unfold. And so you've got these religious leaders that, that show up and they see all this stuff and they, they're, they're, you know, they're looking for somebody. They got their little pin light and they're looking, they're trying to find sin and they finally find somebody and they want to throw her right in the middle of the light, to be humiliated, to be embarrassed in front of anybody. And Jesus steps on the scene in this moment and he takes their little pen lights and just kind of breaks them and throws them away. And Jesus kicks the door down. And he says, this isn't about a little pen light. I am the light of the world that's going to expose all things. And in this moment, he doesn't just expose the woman. She's exposed and it's not even his doing. He comes to a moment, he says, I am coming to a place where I am going to reveal to everybody their sinfulness, their brokenness, so that they can find a cure in relationship with Christ. And so this is what Christ does. Initially, when we come to faith in Christ, he cleanses us of our sin, and then he continues cleansing us of our sins. Does that make sense? So he has is, he is cured us of the disease. Eternally, we're right with God. But here in this life, there is still work to be done. It's called the sanctification process. Sanctification just basically means this. Um, it means to be separated from the world and separated unto God. And so the further I go along in the sanctification process, it's a cleansing process. More of the world is taken out of me and more of Christ is put in me. This is the sanctification process. Now, what's so interesting about this narrative that unfolds right here is that as the conviction of the Holy Spirit falls on this woman, the same conviction of the Spirit falls on these religious leaders. And notice this, it's the same. The same light that exposed her, even though it didn't publicly expose them, it is illuminated, Christ has just illuminated the sin of their own heart. Okay, the same light that has brought conviction to her and exposed her is the same light that they are experiencing. But here is the catcher. Their reactions are polar opposite to the conviction. The same conviction that brought this woman into the arms of Jesus, the same conviction that pulls her into Jesus is the same conviction that pushes the religious leaders away. And the reason is simply this. 
it always and forever comes down to the condition of a person's heart. It's not about the works. It's not about the religious system. It's not about the church attendance. It's the condition of the heart before God. And these men revealed who they were in this moment. The reason is because they were being sanctified. God was trying to get them to a place to understand that they were in sin so that they could begin the sanctification process so that they could be saved and continue in this process. But how many of you know that is a really, really painful process to go through? You remember the, um, I was born in the 80s, which is the greatest decade in my opinion, because I was born, my wife was born, President Reagan was in office, Coca-Cola was huge, and Nintendo was invented. I mean, there are just so many things that were great about the 80s. One of the great things about the 80s um, was the movie Gremlins. Do you remember the movie Gremlins? Uh, it, was, it was made when I was, I was four years old when Gremlins came out, and, and I remember the movie. If you're not familiar with that, I'll give you a quick just overview. Gremlins is a movie about a man who comes home after traveling overseas to China. He comes home to his wife and their teenage son at Christmas time, and he gives his son uh, a gift. And, and the son goes and, and he opens the gift. He's not really sure what it is. He thinks it's some kind of animal. The man opens it, and all of a sudden, what pops out is this furry, little, cute, snuggly creature named Gizmo. They named him Gizmo. And so the guy takes him out, and he's like, he is adorable. He is so cute, and he you know, kind of snuggles him into everything. Later in the movie, the reason it's called Gremlins, what's going to happen, the little creature is going to have an allergic reaction of some kind, and he is going to reproduce other little cute creatures that ultimately evolve into like these little demon alien things that terrorize the city. They're gremlins, okay? That's ultimately what happens. But in the moment he opens it up, um, something happens. The, the son is holding the gizmo, and the mom grabs a camera and she says, oh, I want to get a picture. And she goes and she clicks the camera and the flash goes off. And when the flash goes off, that's exactly right. The little guy starts screaming, bright light, bright light. And he buries his head and he tries to run away. He tries to get away. And, and several times throughout the movie, you will see sometimes when a light flashes, he will scream, bright light, bright light. And he will run because he is terrorized because what we find out is that light can actually kill him, right? And man, can I tell you, that is so much like the sanctification process. Sometimes when we take a step from looking at other people in the light and we choose to look into the light, sometimes, bright light, bright light! Because it's so painful to look at the brokenness within when we can simply step back and look at the brokenness in somebody else. It's so much, it's so much easier to do. This is for all of us, but this is why it's necessary for us to walk through the sanctification process process. It's so frustrating at times. Uh, I remember one time I was, uh, I was traveling and something had happened and I was with my whole family. This was years and years ago. And one of my kids was just incessant about something and, and they wouldn't be quiet. They wouldn't listen um, and all these kind of things. And in the moment, I was very, very frustrated. But before that, I had really been wrestling with some things with the Lord. The, I felt like the Lord was calling me to, to obedience, uh, to, to do something. I just, I, it, was, it was tough for me. I was still, I'm still in sanctification process. And so uh, I'm struggling with the Lord. And, and out of my own mouth, 
at one point I look back at my kid and I say, why can't you just do what you're told when you're told? And he didn't say this in these words, but it was almost as if the spirit spoke and said, Corey, that is a phenomenal question that you should ask yourself. Because all of a sudden, I had taken an issue where I was looking at my kid and I was super frustrated with their behavior. And I was so frustrated that I was calling it out. And parents have to discipline. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. But I was so focused on that. But as I was focused on that, it's like the spirit drew me into the light and I looked and I saw the brokenness in myself. And it gave me a totally different perspective. And so in this whole narrative, this is really what we see about the light. We see the light of Christ in the lives of sinners. And we see what it doing is it is exposing sinfulness. It is exposing brokenness. And hopefully, as we see with the woman who is called the act of adultery, it is purging the sinfulness in the same moment. Now, as we dig a little bit further and we talk about the light, um, not just in this moment, but really all throughout scripture. Um, the Bible has so much more to say about not only physical light or spiritual light, but how God has used light all throughout creation history. Um, it is used for these means that we just talked about, the, the purging, the illumination of the soul to bring conviction uh, of the Holy Spirit, um, but, it's, but it's so much more than that in Scripture. So for instance, when, when you look in the, the opening verses, the opening sentences of the book of Genesis, what you find is that the Bible says the Spirit of God was hovering over something. And that's something he describes with three different descriptive words. He says it was void, it was empty, it was dark. And until the Lord speaks, that is the condition of the universe as a whole. But the very first words he speaks are this, let there be light. And then all of a sudden, in a moment, the darkness, the void, the formlessness, all of this is separated and it becomes two different things because the Lord used light to do it. In Exodus 13, we see Israel being led uh, by a pillar of light through the wilderness. Moses, after he has an encounter with the Lord, scripture says that he comes down from, uh, from the mountain and he is with the people and the people said that they could not even look at him because it's as if his face was radiant from the glory of God. It's as if his time with the Lord, his closeness with God had literally seeped into his pores that people could not come near to him, so much so that Moses had to make a contraption with a veil that would cover the brightness of the glory of God coming off of his face. Isaiah, uh, prophetically, he sees Christ coming into a morally bankrupt and morally dark land. And he says, those who have sat in darkness when the Messiah comes have now seen a great light. The Magi, when the Christ child appears, the Magi show up on the scene. They are trying to find the Messiah. What are they following? A light that God has designated in the sky. Three disciples, including John himself, 
Jesus goes up onto a mountainside. The disciples follow him. Jesus, before their very eyes, is transfigured into his deity. He stands there. He speaks with Moses and with Elijah. The Bible says that the glory of God was shining through the humanness of Christ, so much so that the very fabric of his clothes started to glow. It isn't that Christ produces light or reflects light, 1 John 1.5 says that, that God is light. One of the early church fathers, um, he made a tremendous statement. He said this, he said, Jesus came under a cloud of flesh in order to temper his light. In other words, Jesus is light and scripture reminds us in Old Testament that no man can see God and live. In the incarnation of Christ, God in human form, the light of God is put into the shell of a body. And that is the only way that he could have interaction is because he chose to accommodate us and to shield us from the glory so we might not die. John writes that another time, he says this, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In this portion of scripture, when, when, when John uses the word, uh, he says that the word was God. He uses the word, uh, we call it logos, and it, it basically, it, it translates as the word of God. But what we understand in the context of the scripture is that John is equating Jesus with the word of God. He is saying that the word of God are literally the words of Jesus. And so when we look at what scripture says about scripture, and what scripture says about the light, we read things like this in Psalms. Uh, the scripture says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So in other words, scripture is saying this about scripture. When you read the word of God, the light of God is going to help you see things that you otherwise may not see because of spiritual blindness. And so we see over and over again that, that God is using uh, light in different ways. You remember when, when Saul is on his way to Damascus and the Bible says that the, the glory of God shone in Christ and it knocked him off the horse. The Bible says that the glory of God was so bright, it was as bright as the noonday sun and it blinded Saul for three days and three nights. In Revelation, we see where the city of God in Revelation 21, in the city of God, it is energized by the glory of God, by the light of Christ. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that there was no, no longer a need for the sun or the moon or the stars or any other kind of light because the glory of God gave it its light. It's an incredible thing to understand. When Jesus says, listen, I am the light of the world, he is saying, I am God. I have come not, not just to illuminate the conscience of men and women, which he did, but he has come to unveil all things for all people. And so when, when we see Jesus make these claims, in the same way that, that Jesus made the claim that I am the bread of life, 
this phrase in the Greek that, that he uses where he says, I am, is connected to Old Testament scripture in Exodus. We referenced last week where Moses goes to the burning plant. It is not being consumed. Moses says, I will go to Egypt, but when I go, who do I say sent me? And the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, you say that I am, that I am has sent you. And so every time we see Christ use this phrase, I am, he is intuitively communicating. He is claiming deity when he does that. Uh, I've read a lot of, of uh, secular books with uh, people, especially people who are atheists and different things. I've read excerpts and different articles. Um, and a fascinating thing happens a lot of times. You'll have people who are brilliant in their field try to cross their field into theology and start to dismantle the Christian faith. And you will hear them say things over and over and over again, things like this. Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be divine. What I'm saying is that this very event that we have just read completely dismantles that whole argument. Because out of this, an entire teaching, an, an, an entire argument, an entire verbal fight proceeds because Jesus has said, I am God, I bear witness of myself. And they said, you've just claimed something that you're not and it's not true. And so we, we live in a world that truly just kind of wants to dismantle things that have no business dismantling. It is the spirit of antichrist. It is the spirit of all things against Christ that is in operation when we begin to hear things like this. And so what happens in the narrative is Jesus says, listen, I am the light of the world. And they say, you just made a claim about yourself, but you're the only witness. You need to have two witnesses. Jewish law says you must have two witnesses in order to have a case for anything. So for example, if uh, somebody goes to your house and they, they steal your pig, okay? In Jewish law, if you say, Pastor Justin stole my pig, but you're the only one who saw it, you have no case in court. But if me and Pastor Glenn go and we say, we saw Justin steal my pig. Now all of a sudden I got a claim. I can, I can make a case in court. And so Jewish law says this, and what the, what the religious leaders were saying was, Jesus, you're the only one who is saying this. But what they don't realize is that Jesus had tremendous witnesses, not just in his lifetime, but before his lifetime, and something even more phenomenal than that. But listen to this. John the Baptist, as Jesus comes over the hill for the first time, makes the declaration that behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In that moment, he is give a, given a witness to the divinity of Christ. At Jesus' baptism, scripture says that the heavens parted, a voice from heaven came down and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In that moment, the father has given witness to the divinity of Christ. Nicodemus, one of the premier religious leaders in John chapter three, he goes and has a conversation with Jesus and this is what he says. He says, we know that you have come from God. We know, and in that moment, he has given witness to Jesus. When Christ is on the cross, the criminal on the cross sees the divinity of Jesus and bears witness of it. The soldier at the foot of the cross looks, and he looks on the one whom is pierced, and he says, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. The disciples, the apostles, the prophets of old all confirmed this, 
And what is so incredibly interesting is that unknowingly, these religious leaders that are claiming that Jesus has nobody to support his claim are actually being witnesses even though they don't realize it. Listen to this. There is a Greek word that's used when Jesus bends down to write on the ground. He bends down and to write, and, and the word, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because you would laugh and I would feel dumb and all that stuff. So I'm going to spare you and me. Jesus goes down to write, and the Greek word, it literally is translated to write something against. So scripture, what John says is that when Jesus went to write, that he wrote something against these religious leaders. Now, we don't know what he wrote, but there are ample theories that I want to share with you. One theory says that Jesus goes down and he begins to write in the sand. And what he's writing is the sins of the men that are standing before him with the stones. One, one, one theory is that as Jesus is writing this in the sand, that the stones that they're holding supernaturally begin to reveal the sins that Jesus is writing in the sand on the rock. It's a little far-fetched, but that's a theory. Another theory is that Jesus bends down and he writes the number seven because the seventh commandment speaks against adultery. Another theory is that as Jesus bends down, that he's writing the name of the man who was in adultery, but was somehow vacant and not at the scene of the crime. A fourth theory is that Jesus bends down and he just simply writes the word mercy. And a fifth theory is that Jesus was just kind of doodling in the sand, smiley faces and, and stuff like that. Now, If I had to guess, because we can't prove any of this, the only thing that we can prove is that Jesus wrote something against these men. That's what we know. We just don't know what he wrote, okay? But if I had to guess, it was probably something that was illuminating the sin within them. It was, it was probably something that illuminated the deepest, darkest, probably the most hidden sin in them. And listen to this. As he does this, Unbeknownst to them, they are fulfilling a messianic prophecy from Jeremiah 17. Listen to the scripture. The prophet writes this. He says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. They look on Christ. They say, you can't say that. You can't identify yourself with God. You're the only one that believes that you have no witnesses. Jesus, in his brilliance, does something that nobody can do. And he causes these men to fulfill the, 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 the prophecy that was written thousands of years ago. And in turn, they would become the second witness in this moment. Powerful, crazy. I know that's a lot of, but trust me, I'm, I'm not crazy. This, there's validity here, but I'm just saying this. We've got to be a people as believers who are very, very careful about coming to look at people who are thrown into the light 
when we ourselves have not looked into the light. Now, I'm going to say this. Judgment in the house of God needs to happen. Church discipline is a thing, right? Like, like the body of Christ, there are times where situations need to be dealt with from spiritual leadership. The scriptural, okay, it is what it is. Those things need to happen. But far be it from us to be a people that want to stand over here and make those judgments when we haven't thrown ourselves into the light so that we can gain understanding and perspective of the mercy of God that's been given to us and we want to be people who are merciful uh, to others. And so we see the light of Christ just in so many ways. And finally, really quickly, we see the light of Christ in the saints of God. Paul wrote this to the Ephesian church. He said, everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Now, in context, he's talking about a person who comes to faith in Christ. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, when Dave is illuminated, when, when Christ illuminates Dave and, and Dave turns from his sin into Christ, Dave becomes a light. Glenn becomes a light. Nathan becomes light. Janice becomes light. It, it, those who are illuminated become lights. It's not that we are the light. It's that we are reflectors of the light. Jesus said this. He said, and I know this can be debated, but Jesus said this. He said, listen, you will do greater works than that which I have done. Listen to me. Oftentimes when light is reflected, it can be brighter than the source of the original light. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that we are God or anything like that. That is the farthest thing from what I'm trying to say. But I am saying this, that the way that we live our lives and allow the light of Christ to be reflected from our life, it absolutely emphatically matters. And so we must be a people that continuously invite the light into our lives. We must be a people that continuously step into the light and we say, Father, expose exposed for the sake of sanctification, exposed for the sake of, of holiness and righteousness and relationship, but Father, exposed for the purpose of mercy to other people. Help me to see my depravity so that I can shine really well for you. I remember um, in, in Panama City, I'm wrapping up here, but in, in Panama City, uh, my wife and I served at a church there for about 10 years. And um, there was a lady and in, in, she was our bookkeeper. And um, she, was, she was probably in her 70s by that time. She's, she's still alive. She is the healthiest woman I've ever met in my life, truly. Um, she took so many vitamins every day and it was incredible. She ate, um, you know, it was amazing, um, her dedication to health. But anyway... Uh, I would go in and we would have, she was so deep spiritually and I had so much respect for her. I would go in and talk to her often uh, about theological things and her relationship with the Lord and just hear stories from the past. And uh, it was really pretty incredible. And, uh, but I remember one time we, we got into a little scuffle and uh, she had kind of called me out because of something that I had said in a sermon one time. And uh, what I basically said is that I was a sinner saved by grace. And don't say amen to this, I'm going somewhere. I said, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And she said, Corey, you're not a sinner saved by grace. She said, you're not a sinner. Don't identify yourself as a sinner. You were a saint. You were a child of God. You were the, everything. I said, Miss Pearl, I understand what you're saying and I agree with you. I said, but I'm still a sinner saved by grace. And she said, I am not gonna claim it. I am not a sinner. 
I am not a sinner. I said, I'm not saying you're a sinner. I'm saying you're a sinner saved by grace. She said, I am not a sinner. I gave up and I walked away. The reason I had that discussion with her is simply this. I, now, I will say this. I conceded and I said, okay, you win, Miss Pearl. I'm a saint, you know. But I started having this conversation with her for this reason. I think it's so good for me. You may be different, but it's so good for me to remember my depravity. It is so good for me to remember my brokenness, my sinfulness, my bent toward darkness. It's so good for me to remember that because what it does is it keeps me dependent on grace. It helps me forever to look into the light, not just at people in the light. It helps me to say, I am equally as broken and as depraved and in need of grace as much as the worst person that there is. Scripture would say uh, in, in Job, uh, Elihu is talking to, to Job and his friends and he's given this beautiful oration to, to Job and he's talking about the glory of God and the majesty of God and the light of God and how he shines on the entire earth. And in the midst of that, what he does is he compares humanity to the glory of God. And he, he, compare, he says that we are like maggots. That's what he says. He says we're like maggots. I'm not saying you're like a maggot. But what I'm saying is that Elihu had a perspective of the greatness and the glory of God and the depravity of man. And because he had that, he was able to give an, an intellectual, spiritually mature response to the situation at hand. And may the Lord help us to be able to do the same as we encounter situations like this. So in the midst of this powerful encounter with Jesus and these, this crowd and this woman, Jesus makes once again this phenomenal claim that he is God, he is divine, that people are sinful. And, and again, just like last week, he uses this word. He says, and unless they believe in me, unless they believe that I am he, unless they believe that I am, they cannot inherit eternal life. And so I would say to any person in this room or any person that will watch here in the future, that if you have not come to a place of, of faith in Christ, I just want to remind you that the scripture says that if we simply believe in our heart, confess with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has indeed raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. And that if we confess our sin and our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, the reality is, is that I know the room I'm talking to and most of you have followed Jesus longer than I've been alive but I would just simply say this to us. May we forever be a people that cast ourselves into the light. And we say, as David said, Lord, search me and try me, point out any wicked way within me that I may repent and turn to you. And the scripture says this, it gives us this promise that we cling to. It says this, 
And those who look on God are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Not because of what we do. Not because of the goodness here. It's the glory of God. It's the goodness of God. It's the benevolent nature that God would come and love us and offer his son for us. But listen, not just so we can go to heaven, which is incredible, but not just so we can go to heaven. We can be a part of a kingdom and a spiritual family, brothers and sisters, but even more than that, sons and daughters of the most high God. And in this moment, that's what, exactly what Jesus does to this woman. He says, I don't care how broken you are. It doesn't matter to me how many times you've been caught in the act of adultery. I'm telling you to come to me and go and sin no more. But I'm telling you, come to me because my arms are wide open. And it's an amazing story that we get to be a part of. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you real quick and we can be dismissed. Father, we love you tonight. We are so thankful for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are the light of the world. I pray tonight, Lord, that you will help us, Lord, as we walk through the sanctification process and as we see things that you illuminate in our souls that we need to repent of or move away from or do or whatever. And we just pray, Lord, for the help of the Holy Spirit. Remind us, Lord, that you did not come to condemn us. You came to encourage us to move closer to the Father. And so I pray tonight in Jesus' name that you will help us do it. I pray your blessing over your people as they go. We look forward to seeing them on Sunday. We love you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.